Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and in our conversations today here on Focus on Africa, we will be in Chad, where the killing of an opposition leader has us wondering where that leaves elections due in May. You'll hear the moving plea for justice by Esther, niece of the woman who was killed by a British soldier back in 2012. My aunt Agnes Wanjiro was murdered by British troops 12 years ago. She left behind Stacey, her five-month-old baby. It pains me to tell Stacey that justice for Agnes has not yet prevailed. King Charles, you could change this. You are the commander-in-chief of the British Armed Forces. As such, you have a special responsibility to ensure your men cannot get away with murder. And our final check-in with some of the African students who fled Ukraine in terror when the war broke out there two years ago. It was very, very difficult for black people to leave Ukraine. They beat me with the stick because I tried to cross the gate and then they beat one of my mates with the AK-47 gun on the head. They took our belongings and threw it away. They said, no, you black have to go back and fight. It's Friday, the 1st of March. First, we go to Chad. It's a country we don't talk about very often, but it's worth marking the fact that one of the main opposition leaders, Yaya Dillo, was killed during an exchange of gunfire with security forces in the capital N'Djamena. Witnesses say they heard heavy gunfire near the headquarters of Mr. Dillo's Socialism Without Borders party. Now, elections are due in May in Chad, which is meant to bring an end to the transition from military rule that began when the then-president Idris Debi Itno was killed while visiting soldiers who were fighting rebels in the north. I know it sounds like a complicated story, but stay with me. It's interesting. When Idris Debi was killed back in 2021, his son, General Muhammad Debi, took power. It wasn't called a coup exactly, but the men in uniform were definitely in charge. Now that is due to end in May, when general elections are due to be held that should return the country to civilian rule. It is all but guaranteed that General Debi will run. One of the people who was due to stand was Yaya Dillo, who also happens to be his cousin, because that's how they roll in Chad. Yaya Dillo is now dead. But how did he really die? Ini Dele Adediji is with the School of African and Oriental Studies here in London. The problem with ascertaining what's really gone down is that the Chadian government has released its own official account of what happened, while the Socialist Party Without Borders has also released its own version. But what we do know is that it was alleged that an attempt was made on the life of the president of the Chadian Supreme Court on Tuesday. And it was claimed that Ahmed Turabi, who was um, a high-ranking member of the Socialist Party Without Borders, was responsible for the assassination attempt. And Ahmed Turabi was killed on Tuesday. And that's 
what's believed to have kicked off the chain of the violence, which has now culminated in the death of Yaya Dilo as well. In very broad strokes, just tell us how Chad got to this point. We know that about three years ago or so, the president at the time was killed on the battlefield. His son took over. We're talking right now about the tensions that have spilled out between his son, who was the head of the junta, and Yaya Dillo, who is related to the head of the junta. What exactly brought Chad to this point? I believe within the broader context of Chad's political history, what's going on at the moment there isn't overly surprising, if you think about it. Chad has a a long history of quickly shifting political alliances, of um, political betrayals and things like that. One of them, the previous former president of Chad, Gukuni Wedi, for example, was toppled by his former ally, Hissene Habre, and Hissene Habre was then also toppled in a coup d'etat by the late Idris Deb Itno, who was previously allied with him. And so there's a history of quick shift in political alliances in Chad. It's also worth noting that the younger brother of the late Idris Debi Itno, Saleh Debi, moved from supporting the, the current Chadian junta to joining the, the Socialist Party Without Borders and forming an alliance with Yaya Dillo. So there's a long history of this sort of political instability triggered by shifting alliances by political blocs in Chad. So where does this leave the opposition? Because let's not forget that an election date was set for May. And so the opposition obviously must have been relying on Mr. Yaya Dillo. Did he have that much pull? And does his death now weaken the opposition? While I would not want to downplay the the influence and capital of um, Yaya Dillo and the Socialist Party Without Borders, I do think it's worth clarifying that there's no united opposition or united opposition voice in Chad, within Chad's political space. And so there's that on the one hand. There are several stakeholders and players in the Chadian oppositional space all jostling for power, for prominence, for for positions. And so previous governments have always played on that absence of unity amongst the opposition to consolidate power. To give a recent example, the head of the Transformers Party in Chad, Success Mashra, who was until recently a prominent critic of the government and a prominent opposition voice, went into exile in 2022 to the US, recently returned to Chad, agreed a deal with the Chadian junta, and Success Master has been made at the end of last year, was made uh, the prime minister of the transitional government in Chad. And so it's expected that President Mahamata Debi will draw from his late father's playbook and try to offer deals to members of uh, different opposition parties that they probably will not be able to refuse as the May 6th elections draw closer. So essentially, if we ask what do the opposition want in Chad, would the short answer be power or access to power and resources? To put it very simply, yes. The short term and medium term 
strategies or objective rather seems to be to just push out the military junta and gain power. Is that looking likely? Does Mohammed Debbie want to stay in power? While I would not consider myself to be politically clairvoyant, I will say that Mohammed Derby is likely to win the, the forthcoming presidential elections and will remain in power. His candidature has already been ascertained by his party. So we know that he's definitely planning on contesting. And it's believed that the recent constitutional amendment was made with that in mind. In the meantime, Chad is in a dire situation. The president, General Mohammed Debi, announced a state of food emergency. Just tell us more about what's happening to the people of Chad. Apart from the current political tension on the ground and the political crisis that Chad finds itself in, Chad is also beset by a confluence of humanitarian crises. On the one hand, Chad is a, for for laypersons, Chad is a landlocked Central African country in the Sahel. Much of Chad is desert, essentially, and Chad has been heavily affected by climate change, by irregular rainfall, by drought, famine, and then, of course, most recently, a massive influx of refugees coming to Chad from Sudan as well, which has put a huge strain on Chad's already strained economy. Ini Dele Adedeji from the School of African and Oriental Studies here in London. Agnes Wanjiru was 21 years old when she was found dead in a septic tank at a hotel in a town called Nyanyuki in Kenya. For years, her family couldn't find any answers as to why she died. All they knew was that she'd been killed, leaving behind a five-month-old daughter called Stacy, a grieving sister, and a young niece among her relatives. An inquest in Kenya in 2019 found that Agnes was murdered by British soldiers. But no subsequent action has been taken by the army. And none of those who were there the night Agnes died have been questioned. Britain's defense secretary at the time had offered to meet Agnes's family, but that hasn't happened yet either. Last year, King Charles visited Kenya in his first official visit to the continent as British monarch. Besides Kenya being a former colonial territory where a brutal war of independence was fought by the Mau Mau, it holds a special place for the British royal family. It's where the late Elizabeth II heard about her father's death, which made her queen. Prince William, the heir to the throne, proposed to his now wife, Kate Middleton, in Kenya. So when Agnes's niece, Esther Njoki, wrote a letter to King Charles ahead of his visit in October last year, she was reaching deep into this history to call for justice for her aunt Agnes. When my aunt was killed, I was eight years old. I can recall very well of her disappearance the day that she left home and she didn't come back. She left her five-month-old baby, Stacy, who is now 12 it took us two months to discover her body in the septic tank. Tell me about your auntie Esther. What was she like? My aunt, she was very smiling, hardworking. She used to take care of us when my mom was not in. She also used to braid our hair. Now I've shaved because there's no one to take care of my hair. 
I'm sure if she'll be arrived, she'll be pretty in my hair, so my, my hair will be looking nice. Yeah, because she was a hairdresser. I always remember how of her smile. She used to smile a lot. She used to be happy every time. You don't live very far from the army base and quite close to where Agnes died. That must be difficult too. It's right there reminding you. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Mm, the army is just a few kilometers of where we live with Stacy, also with my mom. And so when I see the British soldiers around Nanyuki and our family has not been served justice, I will see that we are being denied our rights as the family. You wrote an open letter to King Charles last year asking him to visit your family. That was a very brave thing for you to do. Do you have that letter with you? Yeah, I do. I do have it in my phone. Could you read us the letter, please, if you don't mind? Yeah. Your Majesty, due to visit Kenya, I am extending my heartfelt invitation for you to meet my family. My aunt Agnes Wanjiro was murdered by British troops 12 years ago near their barracks in Nanyuki. She left behind Stacy, her five-month-old baby. There is belief in many parts of the world that innocent blood cries out loudly from the ground. It may be the case for Agnes. Her daughter is at the age now where she's beginning to ask questions about what happened to her mother. It pains me to tell Stacy that justice for Agnes has not yet prevailed. Although an inquest found my aunt was murdered by one or more British soldiers, the coroner warned of ministry. It is possible that even after stating a decision in this opinion, no action may be taken by any of those charged with doing so. If that be the case then, those who know the fate that befell Agnes on the night of March 31st and 12th shall be in the hound of heaven. While I trust in God to pursue these sinners, it is distressing to see the riches here on earth doing so literal. We sought up from both UK and Kenyan governments, but even after reopening her case in 2021, nothing has been done. No soldiers have been charged. Key witnesses are yet to be interviewed by police. We worry time is running out. One of them, Moses Moyare, passed away last July. It makes our heart break because he saw the events of that day. British officials don't seem to care. Defense Minister James Hapi told the media he would meet our family in Kenya, but did not follow through. That was so unfortunate because we were eager to meet him. King Charles, you could change this. You are the commander-in-chief of the British Armed Forces. All of the soldiers swear an oath of allegiance to obey you. You must meet us and tell men responsible to do the decent thing and to, to hand themselves in. Is that the end of the letter? No. Okay. You need a moment? Yeah. Okay. Actually, it's fine. Why did you write that letter? We are being denied justice. I don't know if because we come from a poor background, that's why maybe they denied us justice. If it was a daughter to someone who is prominent here in Kenya, I'm sure the guy would have been arrested or maybe justice has been served to the family. Did he reply to the letter? He didn't, but to the official letter that was written by our local lawyer, the High Commissioner responded days after even he had left the country saying that we delivered the the letter too late, so it was too late for them to organize for us a meeting. With King Charles? Yeah. Right at the moment he has he's receiving treatment yeah, for cancer it, and so on, but um, is there a chance that he can be given the letter or are you trying to get the letter to him? 
even now? For now I'm not because time has passed. The letter was published and so even around that time it's sad to let you know that that time we were to have a press conference a day before he would arrive in Kenya and also we were denied, we were almost even being arrested of doing so, having a press conference to air our grievances. Now James Heapy, right, who is the UK minister, has offered to visit your family. He spoke about Agnes. Let us listen to what he said. When I did meet with representatives of the community in Nanuki, including people close to Agnes's family, two and a half, three years ago, um, it was clear that the conversation they seek, and I understand why, was one more um, natural justice, that the sort of the allegation is, the, the public opinion is that this is what happened, this is who's at fault. So make amends, apologise, you know, pay some compensation, uh, take action against those who are accused of it. Well, look, the UK makes no apology for having values around being innocent until proven guilty and due process and these things concluding in a court of law. Um, and if I were Agnes's family, I would be deeply annoyed and angry at how long this is taking. The saying is that justice delayed is justice denied and is now a very long time since Agnes's death. But an investigation is ongoing. The UK government is supporting the Kenyans in their investigation whenever we are asked to do so. Uh, and we will support whatever requests are made of us in the future up to and including charging and uh, an extradition. What do you say, Esther, to James Heapy and what he's saying there? Mm. When I hear him saying that he made people cross to Agnes, I really wonder who are they because none of my cross family member met with him. It was only the government officials, the county government officials that were in that mini meeting. We were not given a chance. He's even saying that he understands the pain that we are going through as a family, but it is hypocritical. If surely they are seeing the pain that we are going through, then we should not be talking about Agnes this year. Also, from the Sunday Times report last year, they said that the DCIs have so much evidence against some soldiers. So the question is, when will these soldiers will be warranted their arrest? What do you tell Stacy, Agnes's daughter, about her mother when she asks? You said she's beginning to understand and ask questions. She asks mostly why has justice not prevailed to her mom. And sometimes she always breaks down when she hears the stories on television, how her mom's right is being violated by the two governments. And she really breaks down. I can even recall when she was sitting for her exam, that is the time King Charles was here, she really broke down. And it was painful for us trying to keep her calm as she was sitting even for her exam. So we were, we were worried that she'll not perform well because she she's very much affected right now. Even though her mom is not around, we are around, we'll always protect her and make sure that justice has been served to her and her mom. Yeah. So did, did, did she find out what had happened to her mother or did you tell her what had happened? How Stacey found about her mom, it's when they, the saga was reported in 2021 right. so that's when my mom 
explained everything. What would be the perfect scenario for you? What would you say is what you, your mother, and Stacy, Agnes's daughter, would want to see happen? Justice being served. And when I say justice, is the soldier, soldier X, being arrested and being taken to prison. That is the only apology because if you say composition, yes, there is that part of compositions because if Agnes will be alive, she'll be taking care of her child, then the British government should be responsible of Agnes' daughter attain the age of 18 where she's now an adult that she can do everything for herself. We can't compare any amount of money with someone's life. So, and even, I don't know what made that guy to kill my aunt. I don't know if it's because of the color or I don't know. Just to clarify something, James Heapy, did he reach out to your family and ask to meet you? Do you know? We have not received any official letters in that he wants to meet my family. So it's only the the one that we are hearing from the news and reading from the articles. Tell me about the Kenyan government and its handling of the case. What do you think, what do you know of what they've done? I believe there is still neocolonialism here in Kenya. Justice should have been served way. The both governments, of course, cooperated to deport the guys back because they went unpunished. No one has been ever in touch with us. Even when they were in UK investigating, interrogating the soldiers, we learned it from the Sunday Times. Okay. Thank you very much. Welcome. Okay. We shall keep on fighting until we get justice. Essen Joki, niece of the late Agnes Wanjiru. The British government maintains that the jurisdiction for the investigation lies with the Kenyan police service. In response to Esther's impassioned plea to King Charles, Buckingham Palace issued this statement at the time of his visit to Kenya last year. While Buckingham Palace has said that the royal visit will acknowledge painful aspects of the UK and Kenya's shared history, the King and Queen have no scheduled plans to visit Nanyuki during their trip. Our bureau in Nairobi checked whether there had been any contact between Agnes's family and the British government. It hasn't happened yet. This time last week, we began to report on the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the African students who were studying there. It was the eve of the anniversary of those devastating events. The war continues today and the impact on both Ukrainians and the students who faced an uncertain future as they fled for their lives is still being felt. The Ukrainians fled to neighboring countries and further afield. They were received with open arms. It wasn't quite as straightforward for the thousands of African students. Many Ukrainians went back home, as did some of the students. We heard from Haifa, a medical student from Tanzania, who did exactly that. Then we caught up with Aisha from Nigeria, who's in the Netherlands now, threatened with expulsion as her special permission runs out. Today, Duany Dongo Fostan Jordan, a student who went back home to Cameroon, remembers those first terrifying days as he tried to leave Ukraine. My name is Duany Dongo Fostan Jordan. I'm 26 years old. I live in Douala, Cameroon. I traveled to Ukraine on the 17th of January 2022 to further my studies. Why continuing my studies in Ukraine? The war started on the 24th of February 2022. It wasn't easy for us black to get out from Ukraine. 
when the war started the same day we went to the train station because i was in harkov we went to the train station to to enter the train to leave the country people controlling the train at the train station wouldn't allow black people to enter the train they said no we have to go back we said no please we want to leave the country the first train went we slept there the second train came the, the next day in the morning it was very very difficult for us to enter the train to leave the town of Kharkov we were just pushing ourselves either you take one Ukrainian child you pretend as if it's your own child so you can enter so by the grace of god i entered the, the train i left Kharkov we went to Kiev after Kiev we went to Lvov which is the border with uh, Poland when we reach the city of Lvov that's when the real work started that's the worst day of my life there was a very very long traffic no cars were moving so we walked from 4 p.m. in the afternoon till 5 a.m. the next day that means we walked like 35 kilometers people were falling on the road children were crying people were leaving their children on the road people were leaving their bags when we reached the border at 5 a.m. it was very very difficult for black people to leave ukraine they were beating us as me they beat me with a stick they beat me with a stick because i tried to cross the gate they beat me with a stick and then they beat one of my mates with a gun with a ak47 gun on the head they beat him he fell down they took our belongings and throw it away they said no you black have to go back and fight go back to ukraine we said no we cannot go back to ukraine and fight the war i stood at the border for 4 days without drinking without eating in the night when there is cold when there is snow they would take ukrainians and go and put them in a hall and then they would leave us black outside So I did four days at the border. The Red Cross took us. They gave us food. They gave us drinks, and they gave us a document, which is available for 15 days in the country. They gave us shelter. I left uh, Poland. So where did Dwanyi go next? I went to Germany. Germany. It wasn't easy for me to get temporary protection. I went to France. France it wasn't easy in France they refused to give temporary protection to black people if you don't have a wife or a child you not have temporary protection i went to belgium belgium it was not able to get temporary protection i went to luxembourg luxembourg they said no i have to go back to my country because my country doesn't have war my country is safe but here in cameroon There is an ongoing war in the anglophone section. I left this Cameroon in 2022 because there was a war where I was going to school. That's why I left Cameroon to go to Ukraine to continue my studies. 
I left Luxembourg, I went to Netherlands. Netherlands gave me temporary protection. On the 19th of uh, June, and then they said the temporary protection is going to to be cancelled on the 4th of March 2023. After that, they said you have to go back home. If you want to go back home, you have to take some money. People took the money. I said, no, I will not take the money. But they gave us temporary protection again on the 4th of March, which was, which will be available on the 4th of September 2023. Every time the government will send us message, newsletters, you have to go back to your country, you have to go back, you have to go out of the Netherlands, this date, we don't want to see you this date, you don't want to do this. So I was not having that peace of mind. I was having that fear that every day, anytime, the government can come and catch us and put us inside the plane and send us back Cameroon. My mother borrowed a very big amount of money to the bank to send me to Ukraine so I can continue my studies and become someone. The war started, I left the money in Ukraine, inside my bank. I left the school fees, everything. So every time we go to explain ourselves, they said, no, that's not a reason for you to stay in the Netherlands. You have to go back home. So I was not well inside my head. They said, if you want to go back, you can take uh, 5,000, you go back home. Because when I went to Europe, that's not what I went to do to work. I went to continue my studies. I said, okay, since I cannot go to school to Netherlands, and they keep up saying you have to go back home, I'll just take the 5,000 and come back to my country. When I took the 5,000, I said I cannot live in a situation when I will not be happy every time I'll have that fear. They may come and catch me and send me back to my country. I said, okay, I applied for the 5,000 and I went back. I asked them, if I go back to my country, will I have some problems when coming back to Europe? They said no. With that little hope in his heart, Duanyi decided to go back home to Cameroon. Life here is not easy at all. Things are expensive. That 5000 that I took, I came to give back to the bank my mother borrowed for me to come back to Ukraine. So actually, I'm doing for all means to come back to Europe, any country which is safe to continue my studies. Us, Black, we don't have our space. We don't have our spaces in Europe because when there's a situation, they will not try to help us black. We are all human beings. We fled the same war. Some Africa died in Ukraine. Our Ukrainians are very, very, very racist. We experienced racism in Ukraine, even in Netherlands. We were in a shelter where Ukrainians were insulting us, like me. They insult me. I'm a monkey. Every time they insult me, they, they say, go back to Cameroon. Yeah, it's not your country that is in war. They give us words. So this is the worst experience of my life. For me, for me, all I want is all the countries in Europe to give temporary protection to Africans, especially students. We didn't ask for war. 
we were there, then the war came. We went to Ukraine to study because Ukraine have affordable school fees for Africans. We all know to get into countries like France, Belgium, Germany, uh, Netherlands, uh, UK is very, very difficult and it needs a lot of money. So, a parent in Africa can borrow money just to send his or her child to go abroad to school. Imagine of the war and then European government decide to send them back to Africa without diploma, without everything. So I asked for the European government to please give documents to Africa so they can integrate themselves in the system. After that painful odyssey, it comes as no surprise that memories of the war are never far from Duanyi's mind. At the beginning, I was a little bit traumatized when I left Ukraine. I was a little bit traumatized because my family, especially my mother, my mother felt sick because she heard her son was in a place where there is war. I was traumatized because of guns, uh, bombs. But now, two years later, now I'm, I'm okay. I have a little bit of peace of mind. Peace of mind. Uh, I thank God for everything. And I also thank God for the government of Netherlands. They gave us the opportunity to work, at least. They gave us the opportunity to work and to have some money, which other countries did not do. What I blame them is because they didn't want us to stay in Netherlands. Actually, I'm not going to school. I'm doing nothing. I'm just like that because there's no money. Here in Africa, we don't earn a lot of money a month. So that's why it's a little bit, it's a little bit strong here in Africa to have a good life. Actually, I don't know next. I don't know. I'm trying to look for something to do to pay maybe my school fees or trying to do what, trying to pay what I can easily learn. Because to go to school now, it's uh, very, very difficult. So I'm trying to look for something to do. Thank you very much. Twanyi Dongo Foster Jordan, back home in Cameroon, two years after fleeing Ukraine. Focus on Africa was put together by Sunita Nahar, Noor Abida, Yvette Twagira Maria and Patricia Whitehorn. Carney Sharp made sure we stayed sharp on point. Ricardo McCarthy was our technical producer. Andre Lombard and Alice Mudengi are our editors. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts.